0: Dive Podcast.
1: Your nose makes you sound weird, Bailey.
2: Yeah, this why? makes me sound weird why you, yeah, why yeah, why are you are doing that? it? Because the fucking breathing. Oh, breathing. Uh-oh. Why does blocking my nose make me sound weird? Listen to me. Listen like listen. Well, no, I'm not squeezing listen, it. I'm just listen, closing it. Listen you didn't even hear listen it. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. I could, yeah. I could tell. All right, I don't want to.
1: Introduce yourselves, fellows. Hello, Ben. I'm Andrew Bailey.
3: I'm Colin Caulfield.
1: And I'm Cole Smith. Uh, we play in a band called Dive. We do this podcast. want wanted to very quickly say this dude, Jamie, from Royal Mile Coffee, sent us like 50 pounds of coffee.
3: Amazing coffee,
1: too. Yeah, really good. One of the nicest things that anyone's ever done for us. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, the nicest up.
3: gift we've ever, or at least... The most generous gift I've ever gotten. Two full big boxes.
0: And the heaviest gift,
3: probably. Yeah. Yeah. Hint, hint, other people who make shit. (laughs) That's
1: very good. We're we're good on coffee for a while, though.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I have enough coffee for like months.
0: Yeah, my family's all going to be getting coffee for Christmas.
1: Ooh. There's something I do enjoy about the ritual of going to the coffee shop and getting coffee, but it's just whenever we do our taxes and I'm like going through. my bank statements, and I just see like $5 every single day at the coffee shop. It's the terrible feeling. It's That's like I'm insane. the dumbest person alive. Yeah. Anyway, enough about me. <laughs> enough about coffee. Um, last time we talked about Sonic Youth, and we're going to continue that conversation. And we also talked about politics and art. And I thought it'd be fun to maybe continue that conversation as well, because there's a lot to talk about on that front.
3: Seems Um, to be a recurring theme on this podcast.
1: Yeah, because it's like, I mean, if there's two things that I'm interested in, it is politics and art. It's like everything else can fuck off. Yeah. But I thought it might be fun. Well, I don't know. I had two ideas. One was going around and trying to like define different terms to see if we agree on what the definition of certain words was. Interesting. And the other one was to just talk about like a common criticism of like activism or socialism is like the, and yet you participate in society argument, which also goes along with the uh, Bernie Sanders has three houses um, argument, which is funny. And it's like, in order to be an activist or a socialist, like people think you have to take like a vow of poverty or something. right? What do you got to say, Bailey? Well, yeah, basically that. And that it's absurd to criticize somebody for
2: criticizing the system that they live in. Like, is it wrong to want to make it better? You know, like, we wouldn't progress at you all. say
0: that from your fucking iPhone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah, and that's kind of the point, is that in order for me to... Like, I could get by without an iPhone. It would just be a huge pain in the ass. But, you know, I'm not saying that smartphones are inherently bad it's just that they're made by slave labor Mm -hmm. and fuck that we need to change that
0: the history of fucking war and imperialism that led us you know into afghanistan to get the silicon for the phones
2: and i did like um before i got my last one i looked up you know alternatives to iphone um like ethical smartphones and they don't exist there was one company that was sort of selling an ethical smartphone for a while and then they had to take it back they're like listen this is as close as it's possible to get mm-hmm. without violating human rights <laughs> which is just yeah we need to fix that i'm not saying fuck smartphones i'm saying fuck the system that allows for that and i think um
0: well you know the end and yet you participate in society um trope is i think it's become just like an absolute meme in in terms of like online Um, political discourse to the point where, you know, there's a single panel from this comic strip by an artist named Matt Boris that is, like, you know, somebody saying, we should improve society somewhat. And then, like, somebody coming out from nowhere being, like, and yet you participate in society. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm very intelligent. And that's kind of like the, you know, like, don't make me point to the sign. But, like, this, you know, it's Mm -hmm. just like a classic um, trope of online discourse that I think is a really important point to make because it's such a um, prominent argument against, uh,
1: you know, progressive politics. But there, I do feel some cognitive dissonance or something in wanting a more equitable world and also wanting things like, I would love to like own a house someday or like own property of some kind. And it's like, I do feel a little bit of, uh, well, I kind of think that hypocrisy is, like, inherent in ideology because an ideal is something to strive for. It's not something that mm-hmm. you, like, necessarily get to grasp. Um, And I just, it's like, yeah, everybody's a hypocrite, you know? Like, there's it's baked into having an opinion on anything.
0: But also, like, I don't think wanting to own your own property is... Like, you know, I think there's, like, the the classic idea of, like, private property is theft. But, like, that is talking about, you know, factory owners and, like, landlords who own a property and then charge you money for doing no work. Yeah. And they become, like, a parasite. And, like, that's not that's not your goal in owning property. Passive
2: income, right? That's what it's
0: called. Yeah.
1: Well,
2: yeah. it's Or it's a type of passive
0: income. My
1: My cheesy, like, music... Uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Um, It's like analogy. Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Was like personal property is your record collection. Is it private property Mm -hmm. is the plant that produces the records? Mm -hmm. And it's you know, it's not that record pressing plants shouldn't exist. It's that the people that work in the plant should have control over mm-hmm. that rather than just some dude who you've never even met that just collects all the money from it. Mm-hmm. Fuck a G-Ride. I want the machines that are making them. A G-Ride? Yeah, the Mercedes G-wagon. wagon. G-Wagon, G-Wagon, oh, yeah. G-Wagon. All Right. I don't, I don't want either of those. <laughs>
3: <laughs> I do think the point about like hypocrisy in any ideology is really good to keep in mind. Mm-hmm. That's a really simple way of looking at it. 'Cause there's like classic there's other classic examples. There's the Bernie one, there's also the Leo DiCaprio flying on private jet to climate change conferences and stuff. Yeah. And then there's also like charities making a profit, which is like a huge um like a huge debate. And a lot of charities get like canceled. Even before like cancel culture, I remember like charities being in the news for getting canceled for like Like where did the money go? But it's like totally ignoring the fact that like it costs money to staff a charity, and it costs money to like run fundraisers and distribute money and all that kind of stuff. And like, at what point is like the amount of money that's being generated by the charity for the people working at it like too much? Mm -hmm. You know,
0: I think it's just like a classic kind of like straw man thing where all the like big. Prominent arguments against socialism are completely misrepresenting the ideas in general. So, like, this past week there were, like, literal bread lines in Texas hmm. where there's people in their cars, which, like, you know, they're in cars, which is, like, different. And it's, like, Um, they're, like, this is the world under socialism. This is the world that, like, Bernie Sanders wants. It's, like, okay, but that's literally the world under <laughs> capitalism yeah. right now.
1: Yeah, and there's also the, like... Oh, like communism has never worked. Like name a successful communist country, and it's like, yo, capitalism isn't working. Yeah. Like, why are we talking about things that don't work when the current system is right. crumbling in front of our and eyes? And look at all the
0: socialist countries the U.S. has stepped foot into, and and like, you know, just like, just like imperial fucking like
2: coups yeah. and. That's the important point. When people always say like, well, communism never worked. It's like, yeah, there's a very good reason for that. <laughs> Anytime it like even starts like a little fledging of a socialist co- country starts, the US imperialism system, the war machine just goes in and overthrows it. And that's not like a conspiracy theory. That's like real shit. Yeah. yeah. And going back to, you know, the 50s in Iran and then all through South America and they still do it. And so to say that you know, communism hasn't succeeded, you know, because the ones that do succeed are, you know, your USSR, or your Cuba and stuff. The only people that are able to resist that initial s- just squashing of their movement are going to be like, you know, not the greatest, but, you know, like Castro, I have some problems with, Mao, I have some problems with, even Lenin, I have some problems with, where it's like these are the type of people who were able to resist that you know cuz they just really don't want communism if if a country has a ton of resources like Iran and oil and they're going to make it you know state owned then there's no opportunity for american or international corporations to go in and exploit it and that's it that's why they don't like communism it's not because they think it doesn't work It's or they think that it's like, you know, ideology. Yeah, it's
1: not ideology. Yeah. It's that they want to use their own resources for their own country and the US is like, well, we need we need some of that. And the irony is that these are like
0: characterized as like poor countries Mm -hmm. because like the the people don't have money, but they're like extremely rich countries. You know, Venezuela has massive amounts of oil. There's like all you know, they're very, very rich countries. But like US imperialism has ensured that the money stays in the hands of the ruling class. And the people don't have any of it, which is like the goal that, that, that communism wants to solve. But like, there's this kind of really, um, bizarre narrative.
1: The Dive Podcast. We did talk about cool thing. I think, was that the last thing we talked about was goo? Yeah, Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I went back and read the interview or I read an article about an interview that Kim Gordon did with LL Cool J that Bailey cited in the last episode about that song, Cool Thing.
2: I actually didn't know that she interviewed him. I read that for the first time this morning. It was really interesting.
1: Yeah, it was interesting. And her feeling weird and out of place at that interview and trying to bring up like women's rights or whatever, and LL was just like, uh, what? One thing I got out of that interview that I kind of want to amend what we
2: were talking about on it because I was a little critical in that I was like, uh, eh, this is, you know, off the mark or something. I forget what I said, adolescent, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that interview, she says that that was the point she was m- making fun of herself as this like white person living in New York City, but in this liberal white bubble. Um, And then sort of being attracted to black men um, and like revolutionary imagery and stuff like that. She's sort of playing a character in the song. Mm
0: -hmm. Um, I feel like you did give her the benefit of the doubt in the thing. You know, like if it's tongue in cheek, then. Yeah, exactly. Well, we
1: also talked about uh, her... Airbnb bit at the beginning of the last episode, mm-hmm. which I think we also were kind of unsure where she was coming from with that. But I listened to her solo album this morning and the song, there's a song called Airbnb. And it's really good. Like, I really like it when art is kind of ambiguous like that where you can't tell if they're being serious or not. And she's clearly, you know, shitting on Airbnb. And just because the album is called... um no home record yeah right and she's talking about how like these kind of gig economy things are like taking away people's ability to curate their own lives and instead you're left with this like mm-hmm. blank corporate like airbnb life like the definition of vapid mhm mm-hmm. and so i feel like every time we were kind of like man is she you know serious in this or whatever it's always like she knows what she was doing,
0: it's funny too, to see um airbnb like aesthetic kind of just like enter culture I know like so for Danny and my wedding, we just like looked at you know people who like on online people have like pic- like inspiration shit for your wedding or whatever, and like the amount of stuff that is just like defines what a wedding looks like today is just like straight up, you know, expensive Airbnb shit. Like <laughs> flannel blanket, antlers on the wall, like a chalkboard wall. And like just this like it's extremely vapid and like just kind of like this blank slate um, aesthetic that is just so,
1: so vapid. She uh, says in that song something about like Andy Warhol prints on the wall. Which I feel like is something we talked about in the Nirvana episode of, like, all of the juice being sucked out of, like, a political piece of art that's just, like, been reproduced so many times that it means absolutely nothing anymore.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, After Goo was the album Dirty, which I feel like is their most political record. I kind of want to listen to the song Swimsuit Issue. Is that the name of it? Yeah. Yeah. That's that nine inch nail sounding on one, right? Yeah.
2: less nine inch nails and more this one nirvana song often sets aside that i can't remember the name of but it's got a breakdown where it's like <laughs> who said don't look back don't believe him i think it's a cover and then it's like don't and- believe me just watch. <laughs> the intro
0: is also <laughs> like the exact same intro as this drive like jehu song called
1: caress mm-hmm. it definitely does it. there's like an industrial element there I don't know I can't make the noise with my face but yeah when I first heard it I was like oh this is the Nine Inch Nails one and then kind of skipped on I think but the lyrics are just like very straightforward like anti-sexual assault song it was written specifically about a dude at Geffen Records who I guess got caught or called out or something assaulting someone who worked at Geffen which you know they were on Geffen Records so that's kind of a Kind of a brave move, and the guy didn't get fired. Yeah, he had to go to therapy. That was his
2: <laughs> punishment. <Yeah. laughs> Tell me about your feelings.
1: <laughs> it's just like
0: it's such a contemporary sentiment, too. Like, did anybody watch that movie, The Assistant?
1: I feel like I did, but what's it about?
0: It's like a woman working in an office and just like subject to like constant, nonstop sexual harassment from her boss, and then like reports it. To HR and gets fucking laughed at.
1: Yeah, Um, I did see that.
0: And like, you know, it is this kind of like like very mundane feel where you just get the sense that like this shit happens all the time. Yeah. In every industry.
1: That was one thing I really like about Kim Gordon's delivery. She's just like, ugh, like, do we really have to talk about this? Like, don't fucking touch me, you creep, you know? Mm -hmm. But then the end of the song, she just says the names of women who are in the Sports Illustrated Swimsuit Edition. And I have trouble interpreting that part. I don't really know what that part means.
2: I think she's trying to humanize them. I I think the point was that our culture is turning men into these people who think it's okay to just grab women's bodies. Mm -hmm. And part of that culture is things like the Sports Illustrated issue. Which is just like, hey, we're going to take a break from men's accomplishments and stuff. And here's just a bunch of, you know, partially clothed women looking really hot for you to fap to. And it's just further objectifying them.
0: Yeah, I think the humanizing thing is like a theme that, um, you know, there's that later song about um, Mariah Carey, about her like kind of like very public breakdown. And it's just like a very sensitive and like human approach to it and it's like taking these kind of like um the like popular version of what what like femininity is and i think we'll probably talk about it a lot more but then just being like there's a fucking person there who's like struggling
1: Mm -hmm.
2: yeah that object has a name yeah
3: we watched the video just now while we were listening and if you haven't seen it it's like a bunch of dudes chiefing bunch of dudes (laughs) like just shirtless smoking cigarettes just like a lot of like like relentlessly male imagery. And then at the end they're kind of like moshing around and I'm positive that that Grimes video Oblivion is a reference to Mm. this because that song is also an anti-sexual assault. Yeah. And it has like, the only difference really is that like Grimes is in the video. Mm -hmm. It like injects her into the video. So she's like at a monster truck rally. There's a bunch of like male, like, like industrial imagery and um, it's like her like dancing around with these like random guys at the arena, and then there's like this moment in a locker room where these these shirtless dudes like lifting weights, and then they're all like moshing around at the end, and she's like in the midst of it, getting like jostled around. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like the same video. It's I see crazy. that totally, and yeah. I
0: like the Sonic Youth cameo in this video because yeah. it's just like the copy of the cd that you're literally listening to <laughs> yeah. you know just like looking at it like what the fuck is this
2: my favorite thing about the video was that like at first i was like ah great another video glorifying cigarettes you
3: know <laughs> um, wow <laughs> straight up no, I <laughs> a geezer
2: uh yeah i mean it it bothers me you know like i I had posters on my wall of my idols and they all had cigarettes. And I think that contributed a lot to the fact that I smoke. And I try to not smoke in any picture, or like any press photos and stuff that we do for that reason. But then the video kept going and I think it was effective because it's so ridiculous to watch people just constantly smoking cigarettes. They're inside. And it's just, yeah. it, it went from like, oh yeah, those guys are cool smoking cigarettes in the studio to just like, Cigarettes are stupid. What it's gross. What the fuck are these people doing? Yeah,
1: it's a gross, it's a comprehensively gross video. And yeah. they're like putting them in their belly buttons and stuff. There's a scene where there's a
3: shot where like a guy puts it in his mouth and like chews on it. Yeah. It's that's gross. the
1: trick. You like,
0: yeah. you like fold it up in your tongue and you like suck it in your mouth. I think uh, Jack Nicholson does it in Easy Rider. Mm. So I like first saw it in Cops trick. and
2: Robertsons. Remember that?
1: <laughs> Chevy Chase vessel. Um, No, I don't. I've never seen that movie. Good flick. There's other political songs, overtly political, such as "Youth Against Fascism," which has Ian McKay. McKay, I never know how to say that. McKay playing guitar, where he says, uh, "That judge is going to rot in hell." I believe Anita Hill. Amazing line. Yeah,
0: and like, I I I feel like you know the name Anita Hill has come up recently a lot. Like not only because the confirmation of Clarence Thomas, like really kind of cemented the, the the far right leanings of of the court, and now it's just you know extreme, but also because Joe Biden presided over the the hearings yeah. um, and humiliated Anita Hill, a black woman who um, you know was in front of this panel of of white men to um, to nominate a black justice far right justice and um like is you know still got elected to the presidency with like a extremely horrible history um that that includes his treatment of Anita Hill at the trial
1: yeah and then like what was it like 20 years later we had the Kavanaugh thing and it was just like repeated again where it mm-hmm. was like here's a credible accusation and then the dude acts like a baby in front of everyone and still gets nominated. Mm-hmm. It's just really sad that we haven't like progressed past the nineties. And like, that's not to mention Tara Reid and her
0: accusations mm-hmm. of Joe Biden. Mm-hmm. And like, as soon as, you know, the fucking like near attendants of the world, who's just like appointed to his fucking cabinet are just like, Oh, I'm, I'm done with like the me too movement now, like take it out of their Twitter bios. And just like, now that, now that somebody that I want
2: in power is accused, like I'm done. Yeah, like he, the, the cabinet position that he just appointed for the intelligence agencies, and she's a war criminal. And you are yeah. like, oh, it's a woman. This will be great. And it's like, wait, wait, no, yeah, but she's a war criminal. Hold on. <laughs> it's like, yeah, but she also owns a bookstore. It's
0: like yeah, it's all <laughs> like this like, you know, I feel like, you know, we talked about liberalism earlier, and it is these kind of like empty gestures. It's mm-hmm. like defined by these empty gestures, kind of like mask on version of the same
2: thing the right is doing. Yeah, exactly. And – and it allows you to ignore the fact that she was the architect of the drone program.
0: Yeah, like like okay, like you know, it's like I think the same thing goes for for Clarence Thomas, like well he's a black man. It's like yeah, but mm-hmm. look at like what his pol- what like the decisions he makes um due to the black community. You know, representation isn't the 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 end game
1: here. Yeah, they're leaning into it super hard too, which just shows you that they're like it's like a bait and switch, you know. They're like, "Look, it's a, it's a woman."
0: <laughs> like I, I feel, you know. We referenced that like one panel comic, um, the like Matt Bors comic earlier, and there's another really good one panel comic of like, you know, people people standing in like Afghanistan. They're like, "Oh, they say the missiles will come from a woman this
1: time." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I've seen that one. Um, but back to the album Dirty.
0: Well, it's like definitely their slickest record and you know i think it comes a lot from the the fucking power duo um of andy wallace and um butch Vig, who were the who produced and mixed um nevermind it's like the same team that that was involved in in that production which mm-hmm. we talked about last episode and you know i have my issues with but um what I feel year like did bo-
1: nevermind come out 91 so it's the same year
2: effectively 92 right it came out like december 91
0: yeah and dirty was 92 but it was like i'm sure that they had you know heard from nirvana of like this is the experience we're having and they're Mm -hmm. like all right this is what we want Mm -hmm. you know it was like i think we talked a lot last episode about them trying to package their their weirdness and their subversiveness into this like pop um kind of thing like at the time which was really pop um you know, this is, I feel like this record encapsulates it the most.
1: Yeah, because you have to, now it doesn't sound pop, but at the time, like, distorted guitars and stuff were what everyone, it was like what was on the radio. Yeah. But it was also still like um, laying
2: the blueprints for bands that would come out a couple of years later. Or actually, I don't know. Uh, I was going to say Smash and Pumpkins. Gish was 93.
1: I think it was earlier than that. All right. But it's it's all kind of part of the same, if not scene, the same general sound. Gish was 91. Gish was 91? Oh, I'm full of shit. Yeah, because Melancholy's
2: 94. Okay, well, um, either way, the song Drunken Butterfly, I was like, oh, it sounds like pumpkins. Mm -hmm. And it was because of the the guitars and stuff. Um, And then there was another one that sounded like, you remember the band Silverchair? Oh, yeah. Uh, Of course. The song Wish Fulfillment sounds like like a cover of Silverchair I would have done in high school. It's like, it's not good except that they did it first. Yeah. Um,
0: I do, I'm glad we brought up Youth Against Fascism and um, Swimsuit Issue because I feel like this is, like, their lyrically most direct Mm -hmm. album. Um, You know, like, I think they'd always kind of been, had this, like, beat thing, which they returned to later, the kind of, like, you know, Nirvana did it a lot too, these kind of, like... um, like incongruous, like uh, just like word salad kind of lyrics, which which I love. But this one had, you know, songs that were like about things. You know, they had a friend that was murdered in um, like right around the same time, their friend Joe Cole, who was roommates with uh, Henry Rollins and like these kind of like actual just like elegies for their friends, which I think there was a tradition of... Um I feel like a really good example is the Jim Carroll song People That Died, People Who Died is just like him it's basically like basketball diaries of the movie in a song where he's just like this guy died here, this guy died here, like you know, these are all my friends and they're
1: dead. Yeah, that song one hundred percent is the yeah. one that's about uh Joe. What was his last name? I don't know. Joe Cole. He. Joe uh, Cole, yeah. He was a black flag roadie as well. And like just like a a big dude in the scene, I think. And
0: there's a song JC on that record, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Which is also right. about him.
1: The I really like the art. And Mike Kelly is a a California guy. And one thing that kind of led me to falling for my fiance, Katrina, was like she had this, we were in a band together and we practiced at her house and she had this gigantic poster of the dirty art. In her living room, and I was like, whoa, this girl's very cool. But like during the lockdown of the pandemic, we just like choose a different neighborhood to go walk around. And she wanted to try to find Mike Kelly's house because he lives in or lived in Pasadena. He committed suicide a few years ago, hmm. which is another sad thing. But um, and then my friend Nathan, who's an artist, has his flat file. He like was just in the market to buy. One And someone was like, oh, yeah, this used to be Mike Kelly's. And he was like, I am purchasing this right now.
0: <laughs> and it is like such a a Sonic Youth thing. Like at that point, they had album art from Gerard Richter, Raymond Pettibon, mm-hmm. you know, this Mike Kelly, and then the future that we'll talk about more, you know, Richard Prince, William Burroughs. John um, Fahey. John Fahey did the Eternal art, like just really... Um, I think there's only one album, which we'll talk about next, that I think was like not an extremely um informed decision on, on in terms of art. Which what album was that? Experimental Jet Set.
1: Oh, yes. Which is you know, we were just talking about how like uh, you know, grunge or whatever was real hip at the time and like being loud was like very cool. And this is kind of a quiet record, and they like recorded it all over the place, like some in like their bedrooms. And I I really like this one. Yeah, I love this album.
3: It has like one of the more distinct moods Mm -hmm. of all their albums, or it's like very consistent
1: throughout. Mm -hmm. Which this was also Butch Vig, which is weird because it's not as big sounding as a lot of his other work. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that it
0: seemed like they. You know, when when Dirty came out, it was like, you know, peak arguably peak MTV and like hundred percent single didn't get any um airplay, you know, and it like there's this kind of disillusionment that I think this record record tackles really well because then like right after this, you know, then they like re enter the mainstream and are headlining Lollapalooza and stuff. But like this is just like it seems like um them kind of like sidestepping the pop direction
1: mm-hmm. for, for an album. There's a funny little bit of trivia that I read that they actually record the album over the Sister master tapes <laughs> and that there's apparently in some of the quieter moments of the album you can hear like artifacts from Sister, huh. which is cool. I don't, I wasn't able to confirm, but <laughs> I believe it.
0: Yeah, like it's like irreverent kind of look at their back catalog which you know this record does there's like it seems like there's like a sense of relief in the in like get stepping aside from from the pop thing and like going back to their roots so it's funny that they would record it over the the first record yeah i mean not the first record
1: an older one over sister yeah
0: poetic um i think it would be cool to talk about kind of this like updated version of femininity and like female sexuality that Kim Gordon um, projected on this. I know Bailey and I were talking about uh, the video of them on David Letterman playing Bull in the Heather, but like that's one of the only videos of them playing on this record because they didn't tour because um, Kim was pregnant with her and Thurston's child and like presenting like a, a pregnant woman as this like, as like the 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 feminine archetype that they're putting forward on this record is, is really interesting. And I feel like it's more commonplace now, but I feel like at the time
2: it was pretty radical. Yeah, definitely. I feel like back then it was expected like you're pregnant, like that's sort of hush hush in a way, or like you kind of disappear for a little while. And when you come back, you better be, you know, have your waistline back and shit like that. (laughs) Um, Whereas now I feel like celebrities just publicly, you know, social
1: media broadcast their entire Mm -hmm. pregnancies. She said that Bull and the Heather was about being like a passive woman, but as an act of rebellion, which I think is an interesting concept. It kind of scares me to talk about it a little bit. Just how does it work though? I mean, um, the quote she said is like, I'm not going to participate in your male dominated culture, so I'm just going to be passive. She's just saying, it's kind of like the if you don't agree with like either of the presidential candidates, you just don't vote. You just sit out, and it's like this is my protest. I'm just you go do your man stuff, and I'll just not participate. I wonder how much was participating,
2: right?
0: Right. Yeah, I wonder how much irony was in that statement because it it seems like like in that lens, I feel like I could it makes sense, but I I don't really understand
1: the what she's saying yeah me neither but i also haven't i don't really i don't have like the the lyrics to that song memorized either so i think the one of the
0: coolest parts about bull and the heather is the steve shelley drum beat it's just like Mm -hmm. so i don't know unexpected i guess for that kind of thing and and like his drums are always really understated but like the way that they're recorded they're like kind of unprocessed and he has like a maraca in one hand and Mm. it's just it sounds like a like a drum loop. You know, it sounds like the
1: like Independence Day drum loop or something. Yeah.
2: I mean, he's playing a breakbeat. Yeah. yeah. It's like a breakbeat.
1: And on that uh, David Letterman video, he's got just a snare, a kick, and a hi hat, and he's holding a maraca. <laughs>
3: yeah. Sick. I love that video for so many different reasons. One, uh, it's just like an example of like the underground or experimental or avant garde just breaking through to the mainstream for a second. It's just so funny to see such like a starkly like quiet, sparse rock performance mm-hmm. on late night. Like it's just like not dressed up at all. And then Paul Schaefer is like really confused. <laughs> he's just standing there like not moving at all, kind of like looking and I, I I'm sure he's just a fucking like rock and ro- rock and roll wonk, dumbass kind of, you know? And so I'm sure at the parts like, do-do-do-do-do-do, the guitar riffs that come in in that song, I'm sure in his mind he was like, I like this part. But then immediately it's just like, what is this song? But then the coolest part, I think, is that Letterman fucking loves them. Yeah. And it's like really excited for them to be on the show, you can tell. And afterward it's like comes up and like puts his arm around Kim
1: and stuff. It's really cool that he,
3: that, yeah, that he was so like supportive
1: of that band. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's also like, something that sonic youth does often is like a part of the song is like a pick slide or like a weird like just like putting the thing on delay which comes across as an improvisation but then you see him do it live and you're like oh no they do this every single time yeah Mm -hmm.
0: yeah it's like you know they have these like kind of prepared instruments and they write these like completely bizarre hooks you know like that so like you know the the bull in the heather like is like you know every guitar behind the bridge part there's these like little short um strings where it goes into the body, right, and like every guitar is different, so every guitar will have different um like when you strum behind the bridge or pluck a note behind the bridge, it'll just be different every time on different guitars, and so they just found. Like, that song is that guitar, Mm -hmm. and that's it, Mm
3: -hmm. you know? I love uh, just the past couple weeks or whatever, like, listening through their whole discography, I love how often they use that sound. Mm -hmm. Like, it's all over the place. Mm -hmm. But it always sounds slightly different, partially, because it's probably a different guitar. And also, not only does it sound different, but it's like intentional it's actually like a written part because yeah. if you listen to live performances yeah it's like the same exact thing even though like i was listening to live in new york at battery park or something like that um i think it's like a song from rather rip which we'll talk about later but all the like noodly guitar parts are like the same Mm-hmm. Like you think, it really, really sounds like they're just like, there's maybe like a core riff or melody and then they like move in and out of it. But it's like they're playing an actual part, you know? Mm-hmm. It's like
0: television, like the, you know, Marquee Moon jam is this like classic, like rock guitar kind mm-hmm. of free jam. And they recorded two versions of it. And they're like, you know, there's, you can tell when they go into an improvised part and it's like kind of free form. But like in general, the all the solos are are written. It's right. just like... um. But I like how the kind of like accidentalness of like the main hook kind of gives you an insight into like their writing process where they're just like fucking around with the, you know, hitting the string behind the nut. And they're like, this works, like, fuck it. And then kind of build a song around it. Totally. Because you can't go the other way. You can't just like add that on because it just, it's it's random what Th- it sounds like.
3: Their ability, like Thurston and Lee Reynolds ability to remember all of that Mm -hmm. technique and all the parts is, I feel like it's just such a weird like, like I have a pretty good musical memory, but if you took away like the like standardized form of like the instrument that I play and I don't think I would be as good at like remembering how to play parts Mm -hmm. and like, I wonder what they did if they like took extensive notes because like there's Bailey, you do it sometimes. Where like you take a video of yourself playing a guitar part, because mm-hmm. then when you watch the video, you're like, oh, okay, my hand was here, like this open string, blah blah blah. But they didn't have like a cell phone in their pocket, where well, you can for a see while. in pictures
0: on the back of guitars. There's always like a strip of like blue painters tape. With like the tuning and
2: then some notes written written right. on it, okay. like about the gauge, you know, because like when I tried tuning to some of their fucked up tunings, it's impossible with standard gauge right. strings. Yeah, and so they had to write also what gauge strings to use for each guitar for each song.
1: Yeah, they um, will. will I think tell the story when it happens in the timeline, but you know they got all their gear stolen at one point and they had to play a festival like that day and they had a bunch of friends bands that were playing there and so they just borrowed like as many guitars as they could get their hands on and they the first thing they did is just like take wire cutters and just mm-hmm. clip all the strings off cuz they use weird gauges on like every guitar
0: yeah cuz when we try you know i guess for people who don't know all of the sonic youth tunings are online you can just look up a song find the tuning that that Thurston used the t- tuning that Lee used and the, and the tuning that Kim used And then the tuning that that Jim O'Rourke would use later. And like, you can just try out the tunings. And a lot of times, like, one string will be just way too high for the thing Mm -hmm. and it'll wanna break. Or it's like just this low, like, kind of floppy string Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. slapping against the fretboard. Yeah. Yeah, One cool thing among so many cool things about this band is the just extensive archiving that people have done around them. Like, Mm -hmm. I would say only Grateful Dead has like more. Archive around them. It's just like every bit of information from every show they ever played is online. It's pretty cool. Yeah. I wish somebody would do that for Dive. (sighs) Maybe someday.
3: The Dive Podcast. I wanted to quickly mention just. To preface like all the stuff that we're going to talk about now is during recording of Dirty, a few of the songs apparently on that album are the first time they use like additional guitars where there's like more than two guitar tracks. I was wondering that. Because even in the swimsuit issue that we were listening to, Mm -hmm. there's like, like it kind of threw me off actually just now listening to it because I was like paying attention. Um, But they... I like how previously in their discography and in a lot of other songs later, there's like some sort of like peak intensity that they can reach as a band. And then they have to find like creative ways to like ratchet it up.
2: Mm-hmm.
3: Um, because there's just like four of them mm-hmm. or five later. But in Swimshoot Issue, it's like intense and it has this industrial thing. And then there's a moment where a third guitar comes in really loud. Mm-hmm. And, and it it's kind up the of middle, like, right? And it's up the middle, yeah. And it really like... I'm not sure that I like that. I'm kind of like, yeah, just wanted, because they're so effective as like a um, like a live band. Yeah. I and, wanted to hear
1: the discussion that in the studio over that because you know they had one. Mm-hmm, I yeah. wonder if the name Dirty is kind of a play on words because it's definitely their cleanest sounding album. Yeah.
2: <laughs> I like that idea. But yeah, I I feel you, like that panned thing where you just hear, all right, Lee's on this side, mm-hmm. Thurston's on this side, and every song is that, mm-hmm. and it's just, I don't know, immersive, I guess? Like, it allows you to feel more... It present. gives you, like,
0: a sense of space. Right, yeah. Which, like, they would, uh, you know, on, like, EVOL and Goo, they would, like, in the main section, like, the pops part of the songs, the guitars would be more center, and mm-hmm. then when it gets into, like, noisy parts, they just, like... Spread across yeah. the stereo field so they're like hard left and right. Um, but I mean, I think that just like they started a thing with this record where Kim was just playing guitar a lot. Yeah. And oh. Jim O'Rourke was playing bass a lot. Um, you know, she plays guitar across, like basically starting here, every single record we're going to talk about,
1: she's playing guitar.
0: Mm. On a yeah. Lot I think that was one reason the...
1: why they added a fifth member so that she could just play guitar all the time. Yeah. Yeah. She but the even in, tunings? Yeah. But there
3: are also songs where they both play bass later on.
1: That's wild. I like that. Yeah. I love that. So
3: I f- What's the ship from uh, Spinal Tap?
1: It goes what to
0: <laughs>
2: the fucking They play a song where they're all playing bass. It's oh, really? called like,
3: I think it's a song about big asses. I forget that part. I don't, <laughs> I don't remember. Just to put a pin on what I'm, the reason why I preface it is because I don't know if I like it for their like, straight ahead guitar songs because i enjoy how like really consistently throughout their discography they it really just feels like you're in the room when you're listening Mm -hmm. to their music because it's just like not very produced and the drums are always or not always but a lot of times like really dry and just it's just like a rock band making kind of fucked up dissonant music but i also do really enjoy their, like, ventures into more experimental stuff with, like, sample-based shit and, like, tape loops and, Mm -hmm. like... So it's, like, it's not like I think on a whole, like, that was when they, like, compromised their, like, identity as a band or something. It's just an interesting moment.
1: No. And they go back and forth because Mm Washing Machine is more of a return to their just kind of, like, noise rock, standard issue Sonic Youth stuff. For sure. Um, But they do have some weirder stuff, some overdubs and stuff. On Washing Machine as well. Uh, like the song Little Trouble Girl. Ooh, Ooh yeah. I love so that good. fucking song. That was my favorite on the record. Yeah. Chimney Listen. A
3: little sings? Bit? Yeah, Can we, we should listen one. to Let's it. Let's listen to that one. Oh, man.
1: If you want. Kind of a um outlier as far as Sonic Youth tracks go.
2: Yeah. Complete. It's driving outlier. me crazy trying to think of what song this reminds me of.
0: I mean I think that's kind of the point of the song is it's like just like so many doo wop songs kind of combined. And that one had um, Kim Deal from the Breeders and the Pixies mm-hmm. singing
1: the, um, like, main, like,
0: if you want me to... And
1: two other women, too, whose names I didn't recognize. Huh. They're probably just friends of the band or something.
3: Kim Gordon and Kim Deal are in the music video together, though, which is a very weird video. It's, like, the two of them in the really sterile, like, office building, and then, like, like an alien... <laughs> child with like no like a shaved head but like a big prosthetic head and then these like prosthetic fingers it's very strange hmm. and that's why that comment took a took a screenshot of this comment on the youtube video this song reminds me that my mother don't loves me and music video reminds me spy kids <laughs> and it really really does look like spy kids it's weird Y'all heard the
2: major minor interplay?
3: I didn't
1: know. That's something
2: I know you guys like. Go off. I mean,
1: there's nothing. Can you explain the part?
2: Um, Or sing it or something? Well, it's like, you know, the whole song is like a doo-wop-y type of vibe. And that was one of the tropes of doo-wop that sort of got borrowed by the Beatles and entered classic rock through that. But um, yeah, just when the chord is. Usually going to be major, and you play that major. It's usually like a four chord, um, mm-hmm. uh, but then you immediately switch it to minor, uh, which, unless you contextualize it properly, it sounds bad. But Duop figured it out. Mm-hmm. The Beatles stole it, and then
0: yeah. I, that is like it. It like hits my ear in just the right way mm-hmm. every time. I love the major four chord. They go to the minor four chord. Mm-hmm. Every every time I hear it, I'm just like, oh, yeah, yes. it's really
2: good. I think we use it on Skin Game, right? Yeah, I was just going to say that. Yeah. It's in the turnaround. I remember when you guys were figuring out the turnaround part, and you were like, yo, I think we just accidentally did the major minor thing. Like, yeah.
1: Like, and we are like, yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I really like the album cover. It's just two people wearing Sonic Youth t-shirts, and then... One of them has is autographed by like whoever the opening band was. I can't remember who it was. <laughs> and then like apparently at the time, Kim was like, Let me take a picture of you. This will be the album cover. And then they brought it to the label and they're like, Well, did you get like a you have to get permission to post these kids' face on the album cover? So they just like cropped their faces out of the picture. <laughs> but it's just a it's basically just a picture of their merch. It's like very like we talked about in the first episode very self-referential that it's like Mm -hmm. the merch became the album became the merch again
0: totally Mm -hmm. and and like the whole packaging of that record like all the the polaroid art i feel like gives you like a real insight into um where they're coming from like the you know there's a there's like a polaroid of thurston I think's record collection and it's just like Mike Sniper level, just like <laughs> fucking wall of albums. And it's like, of course, like there's, you know, you can't make music like this and not be like an absolute, yeah. you know, encyclopedia of music.
3: Yeah. When I was growing up, the, not the album art, but the that specific piece of merch or that image of the yeah. washing machine mm-hmm. was like by far the most widespread visual association I had with the band. Yeah. Forever. That's what Same I was going to say, is that, that that shirt was sort of my introduction to science. Mm-hmm. Same. I think I remember the specific moment <laughs> in my friend Pat's kitchen when someone came over, maybe it was his older sister, Meredith, and she was wearing a shirt. And I, I oh, looked at she? it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was. And I remember thinking that like it
1: was cool without knowing why. Mm-hmm. You know yeah, what I mean? Same here. I, I had a, a very similar reaction of just like, it's just some cool imagery. I don't really know why. And apparently they were toying with the idea of changing their name to Washing Machine, but instead they just decided to make that t-shirt because they thought it was funny or whatever. And then now it's like an iconic piece of memorabilia.
3: So wait, that that piece of merch or that image was with the band from like the very beginning when they decided on their name? No, no,
1: they were... Thinking about changing the name from Sonic Youth to Washing Machine. Whoa. Around the time of this album. Mm-hmm. Right Whoa. before the album came out. Because they, you know, put out stuff under Chicone Youth and other mm-hmm. names. Yeah. So that wouldn't be too crazy for them to do. But Sure.
3: We haven't talked about the Lee song phenomenon. Yeah, there's just so many of them. There's it's not just like three of the songs over no. there. Yeah, it's, it's not like, a George Harrison. Yeah. But even no, he is like a George Harrison because like George Harrison had more than I thought he just had a couple songs on each record. Yeah, but that's about what Lee has, too. Oh, okay. I thought it was more... Like, George Harrison was, like, known for writing music for the Beatles, but then Mm -hmm. not as one of the principal songwriters. I feel like it's a pretty good uh, analogy or whatever.
2: Okay.
3: And
0: how, like, you know, every... Sonic Youth song is credited to being written by Sonic Youth, but like you can tell, you know, just like a Beatles song, you can tell who wrote it by who's singing right. it. Mm-hmm. And with um with Lee, you're just like, who's this other guy singing?
3: Yeah, but I I'm really not bothered. I like it. Yeah. Some of the lyrics
0: to Lee songs are are not so uh not so good.
3: Yeah, I mean like some of the lyrics to all their songs are not so good. But uh, maybe but the the presentation of them is, like, effective or, like... And maybe with him, sometimes his voice is a little bit more, like, plain, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know? Like garage I, rock band, almost, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah, I appreciate that. It I mean, is, like, very 90s. Sounding. Yeah, very 90s,
1: yeah. So you were saying they didn't go on tour for uh, Experimental Jet Set. Mm-hmm. And so then they did tour with this and they were playing some like big festivals and stuff and they used that money to build their own recording studio, which I feel like for a band like Sonic Youth who makes an album every year is a really smart move. Yeah. Yeah. That's like,
0: you know, that starting with, um, in terms of studio albums, Thousand Leaves, the next one was the first one they recorded there. But yeah, I mean, they were headlining Lollapalooza, like really big mainstream festival, like the Mm -hmm. biggest festival a touring festival. Touring festival, yeah. Back when it wasn't just in um, oh, Chicago, so you or whatever. get that paycheck like every week, right? Yeah. yeah, they get
2: that festival guaranteed, bang bang.
0: Yeah, I mean buying a buying a you know recording studio in fucking Murray Street and like downtown you know <laughs> yeah. financial district New yeah. York is just like off of a tour yeah. It's just like yeah. insane to comprehend because you know when we come home from tour. Like, especially early on, it's like we're lucky if we break even, you know, because there's just so many costs and, you know, you're lucky if you get a festival, but doing a whole tour where you're headlining the biggest festival in the world every night. Yeah. Was that the biggest festival, though? In the world? At the time. At the time,
3: no. Really? What else was there? What else was there? Yeah. Before Coachella,
1: before Bonnaroo, before... I feel like Lollapalooza was like the first kind of... I mean. Woodstock, but
3: never mind. Well, I only yeah maybe <laughs> maybe festivals are just different there, but the lineup is only eight bands. I it's think not it like was
2: a, a touring. It was like Warp tour, like right. I, I, And maybe they only had like one or two stages. But you know, it wasn't like a three day festival type of vibe with like twenty bands and five stages.
0: Right. It was. It. it is kind of the prototype for what festivals are today, but it wasn't like in any scale of the way they are today,
3: right? Um, yeah, they weren't getting a million dollars
1: per show or anything like that. Yeah,
3: just for reference, to Sonic Youth headline and then Hole, Cypress Hill, Pavement, Jesus Lizard, Sinead right? O'Connor, Beck, the Jesus Lizard, and Peter Mighty Frampton. Mighty Boss Tones. <laughs> <I'm interested. laughs> Damn, that is a bizarre lineup. Oh, and The Far Side. Oh, hell yeah. Played on second stage. Yeah, there's only two stages. Damn. Crazy. I would love to
2: see The Far Side. I'd love
3: to see The Mighty Mighty Boss <laughs> <laughs>
2: The
1: Dive Podcast. Of all the albums, um, this is probably the one I've listened to the least, A Thousand Leaves. Not for any reason. It's just like they have so much material that I kind of accidentally skipped over this one. So I'm. If anybody else has got some knowledge to drop, I'm down to listen.
0: Um. Well, we had like talking about um, washing machine touring. Um, you know, on that record, Sonic Youth headlining Lollapalooza. Like, I think they had said no to Lollapalooza a bunch of times in the past. There's a quote where. It, Thurston said that they're a bunch of university kids with a spring break spring break mentality mm-hmm. and, like, were resistant to it. Um, and then, like, you know, they finally actually do it and it allows them to have, like, this whole new world of freedom mm-hmm. um, in terms of the music they're making. And so I think it's cool that with that freedom, they kind of went back to their roots. I mean, I feel like we've said that about every record, but, like, this record, <laughs> like... Um, you know, they use the same producer as Confusion is Sex, their their second their second record. And it was kind of like more of a callback to their like oblique experimental um, phase. Mm-hmm. And I it took three years to make it, right? Yeah, it was like something like that. Yeah, like, they were like torn. constantly recording for just like three years. Oh,
3: because this was the first album made at their mm-hmm. studio.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: I remember really, it's funny two actually. Two years
0: recording maybe?
3: Um it's funny that you mentioned not being familiar with it because I've only listened to it a couple times. It's the only their only album that's not on Spotify. Yeah. I know that, that too. I don't know, it used to be on Spotify though. Yeah, I've listened to it before. I, I had the same thing where I like
0: I Googled the name of the record and there was like an embedded Spotify thing of it and none of the tracks would work. I was like, oh my Wi Fi doesn't work. Weird. But yeah, it's it's
3: it's not on Non-Spotify, which is tight. They should take all their records on Spotify. (laughs) This is, it's like, I remember this being more jam heavy. Or like longer instrumental sections. Is that right? Because I think I got into this record when I was living in New York. And it felt really good listening to it in New York in like the winter
1: time. (laughs) I was like walking around listening to this. I feel like the next couple records are very New York Mm. records.
0: Yeah, well, this wasn't. I don't think this is technically part of the trilogy, but like they, they, like right after this, they did the, the, um, like New York trilogy. Is that explicit? I think so. But this one, like, I don't see why it's not
1: included. Mm-hmm. Well, it's, you know, yeah, they did it in their studio in Manhattan. So, mm-hmm. we, should we listen to something from this? Should we listen to Sunday?
0: Cause I sure. feel like that song, you know, we talked in the Noi episode about all the, all the bands that are influenced by Noi and this that song, like especially being the single off this record, with this incredible video um, from Harmony Corinne, like very downtown New York mm-hmm. art scene, um, like underground um, roots to it, and the song is just like you know such a huge play on on the Noi mm-hmm. structure where it's like just the like dang, 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 rhythm and then like the whole middle section, which I think got cut for the single version or cut down, but the whole middle section, it just straight up sounds like negative land guitars. Mm-hmm. You know?
1: Um there's the I think it's on the Whitey album, though I'm not sure, that song Two Cool Rock Chicks listen talking and listening to Noy. And it's just <laughs> Kim and somebody listening to Negative Land and talking and then they call Jay Maskis on the phone and leave a message. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It's really sick. Um, Okay, let's listen to it.
0: Bizarre, bizarre video.
1: Yeah. It's Great. we mentioned this earlier, but not on the podcast, not in the recording. Um, that like music videos used to be a really big part of like album cycles. So we've been and also just like we've heard these songs a bunch of times, so we've been watching that music video, if there is one. And yeah, that's a bizarre one. Macaulay Culkin. Very yeah.
3: confrontational. I just, I think that
0: it's, like, so perfect that it's Macaulay Culkin because, like, this, like, you know, I feel like we've talked a lot about the, like, intersection of mainstream culture with, like, experimental New York culture. And, you know, Harmony Corinne represents that. You know, he, like, got his break when he was really young, making kids, which became, like, a mainstream Film and then Macaulay Culkin, like since his mainstream success as a kid, has like embedded himself in the New York underground mm-hmm. and like surrounded himself with artists like Adam Green who have just been like in the underground New York scene for decades. Um, and then you know Sonic Youth obviously
1: is that as well, yeah, yeah, it's really interesting. Macaulay Culkin and Harmony Korine. uh. Representing like the two different ends of the same spectrum or whatever.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Another like mainstream moment for this record is the, um, that song Female Mechanic on the Natural Born Killer soundtrack, which like, I don't, I hadn't watched that movie in a long time and I rewatched it like a year ago. And it's just like, it's the same experience I had watching Taxi Driver where mm-hmm. it's just like, it's these. Like, classic American films that are just this, like, glorification of, like, white mass violence. You know, like, Taxi Driver is, like, this fucking, like, racist, like, apolitical dude who, like, goes and, like, basically goes on, like, a mass killing and, like, after stalking a woman this whole yeah, time. Yeah, because and he's,
1: like, sexually frustrated, basically. Yeah,
0: yeah, he's, like, the original incel. The Joker. He's the yeah. Joker, Yeah. <laughs> Um. Yeah. That was what made me rewatch Taxi Drivers because Joker was coming out, and I was like, "This is this -hmm. is the original one." And like Martin Scorsese's cameo is just like to drop an n bomb and then like (laughs) leave. But um. Yeah. Like Natural Born Killers was kind of the same thing where it's these like, it's like this classic thing that you see in in like expressions of like white mass violence where they're like, "What caused this?" You know. But Mm -hmm. not the like systemic side of, like, what, you know, like, with black violence, like, what are the systemic issues that that lead to, lead to this? It's more of just, like, wh- how did they grow up? Like, I want to know yeah. everything about the... And that's, like, what the film is. It's, like, oh, because, like, they watch too much TV and, like, she grew up in an abusive family.
1: Yeah, and kind of, like, letting them off the hook a little bit. Completely, yeah. They're fucking heroes. <laughs> um up with hits of sunshine
0: um there's a line in hits of sunshine the painting has a dream where the shadow breaks the seam and it's this kind of like beautiful like beat poet kind of line Mm. and i just i think that for how like oblique their lyrics can be there are these like moments of just like these like beautiful images
1: and that's one that i just like every time i fucking love that line that's a good transition actually into NYC Ghosts and Flowers. Mm-hmm. Um, cuz that album straddles the line of basically being like a spoken word album kind of. And I actually think it's really good. Yeah. And I think it's cool too. You know, it's controversial because Pitchfork gave it a 0.0, 0 Why? which I
3: what I did just
1: I don't know. I didn't I meant to read the review and I forgot to, but <laughs> I just don't I just can't comprehend that. It's like give it a one or a three or something, but like to give it a zero is just, I just find that really stupid.
3: I think the crux of the criticism, well, first of all, that interview or that review is complete horseshit. And I'm like hesitant to even discuss it because it's not worth the time. But uh, let's do it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I think the crux of the criticism from that dude and then also other critics is that like, that album is just really pretentious because it's like a beat poetry album and it's like these these ideas weren't fresh 30 years ago and they're still not you know what i mean yeah which i don't agree with I, I, I get frustrated listening through the entire discography cuz you get to that one and it's like all right this is this is a sonic youth record yeah it's like it's not, not that, that different. different and that dude i mean the reviewer from pitchfork Brian DeCru- Genzo or something like that. Yeah, that's it. He's a fucking moron, and he went on record <laughs> afterward saying that he he regrets making that review. But like when he wrote the review,
0: he would like the founder of Pitchfork said this is our star reviewer. He was like the star of of Pitchfork because he wrote these kind of like different type of reviews, you know. But right. like you know he he eventually got fired by the website because he wrote a review of a Beastie Boys album, Hello Nasty, where he like fabricated this like large story about like trying to track down Beastie Boys um, publicist through Milan and they're, they're just like, this never happened. And so he was fired from the website. I kind of have a a rant about Pitchfork, which I feel like, um, and it's kind of like music criticism in general, but I encountered this... This, this thing in a reading where it's, like, talks about how the critics' own reputation depends on their ability to spot potential superstars, but there's also this, like, like, the, the critics' own prestige and cultural capital is increased when they, like, engage in, like, a particularly, um, like, hot take with an artist, you know? And so, like they're making a name for themselves by either championing or, like, worst case, slamming an artist. And, like, he says it straight up in the review. There's a thing where he's, like, in the he says, a 0.0, 0 is monumental. <laughs> <laughs> I said, have to keep questioning the decision, but the inter- evidence is there. It takes a giant to fall and make this big of
3: a splash. It's like... But he also he also says that he's he had been waiting and looking for the album to give a zero point zero two, to. Yeah. It's and like, that's just not the that's one. The though. Wrong, yeah. Well also just like that's the wrong way to approach. Yeah.
1: And it's just like Well, there are a lot of famous bad pitchfork reviews. Yeah. And like the jet so one. It, yeah. It's part of it's part of the uh, culture or the whatever there. But
0: like here's my problem with it is that Pitchfork has like or you know, at least at at certain points has had a fucking monopoly. Over music criticism and like music in terms of being a tastemaker. So, like, when somebody that influential, when like one writer for a site so influential, it's gonna try to make a name for themselves by slamming your band, like, they, like, a band can be made by a good pitchfork review or can be fucking destroyed by a bad pitchfork review. Yeah. You know, it's, they have too much power to engage in this, like, kind of like self seeking or self serving. Um, like making your your criticism be this like big important thing when you know this is like the band is at in the middle of like a very long and like incredible career and just like to get your own personal points by slamming them
3: and also and in like a weird like ageist and shitty way is just like fuck you it just delegitimizes <clears throat> like their perspective too as a as a website and this dude as a journalist cuz he regrets it now and he says I now love the record. It's unlike anything else. Eerie and beautiful. <laughs> no, the lesson here is beware the opinions of a kid right out of college. It's like no, the lesson here is you're a dumbass. <laughs> like and you prioritized having like a little bit of fame like you're talking about over actually like doing your job like critiquing an album. Mm-hmm. Because like, it, like, eclipses the album itself. When people talk about this
0: record, everything, like, gets mentioned first sentence, 0.0
3: in pitchfork. Right, exactly. And I had a, I had a band when I was younger, and they, like, smoked my first two things <laughs> that I put out. They, like, hated And one was an EP, and they never give EPs, like, high reviews. But the first, like, album that I made put it out. This guy who I won't name... Uh, reviewed it, gave it a really shit review, but it was, like, so lazy, and, like, unbelievably so, where I was, like, t- like there wasn't even, like, a take, you know? Mm-hmm. And then I was, like, looking at other stuff that he... And this was when I was, like, very impressionable and young, looking at other stuff that he had written about, and he was, like, the garage rock dude. And I'm, like, okay, well, so you have this garage rock dude like, reviewing, like, like an Animal Collective adjacent bedroom pop record or whatever. And so I emailed him partially because I was in college and from my vantage point I was like this is just like bad writing you know what I mean Mm -hmm. I emailed him in a kind of calm way but I was just like I just want to let you know that like it's like a bad review and even if you didn't like it like you could have like provided like a reason
0: and you're like a fucking college kid who's like trying to start a career and they're using like one of the most powerful monopolies of criticism to Mm -hmm. just like shame you for even existing for like no reason except to like give themselves the brand of, like, we're going to give you the, like, low numbers because people get the little adrenaline hit when they see, like, a 3.7
3: or whatever the fuck. Yep. Yeah, and then the, there's more to the story. Oh, nice. <laughs> <laughs> so he responded, and he was like, thanks for the note, Colin. And I was like, all right, whatever. And then, for you know, for, from that point on, my my whole sense of, like like, what I should, like, what I wanted to make, what I could make, it was all, like, it had been, like, shattered, you know, because there's, like, this, like, gatekeeper who was just, like, what you made is bad, you know? And, yeah, it was, like, a real moment. And then joined Dive and moved to New York, and Mac was living at The Wallet, this place in, like, off Myrtle Broadway, and he was, like, let's chill. There's this dude from Pitchfork coming to, like, do an interview with me. So we went and got sandwiches, and we are like, waiting in the deli, and here he walks in and i didn't know what it's i didn't know what he looked like but he like he, mac was like oh this is like my friend colin um he plays in dive or whatever and he was like cool and he introduced himself and i was like i know who you are <laughs> and he was like what and i was like you gave my you gave one of my albums when i was younger like a really bad review and he was like oh my god i remember that and he was like i just I just want to say, like, the email you sent me really changed my mind and uh, made me take my job more seriously. Mm. And he was and he hugged me, and I wanted <laughs> to be like, "Good for you, dude!" Like, so at that point, like, you like carelessly reviewed an album and like, like fucked a person up, but your takeaway from it is like, you made me a better journalist. <laughs> it's like this is it really just gets at the absurdity of like something like Pitchfork or. Yeah, because it's about
0: themselves. It's the fucking, Mm -hmm. you know, the critics have the, they're the ones with like, you know, they can gain off of trashing you. And like what the gain is not incremental to like what you lose. Yeah. You can potentially lose your entire career. And they did it to fucking, you know, the other big 0.0 is the dude from um, Dismemberment Plan who fucking gave up his solo career after that. Really? Yeah. Travis Morrison. Such bullshit. Can I read a quote? Another quote from that review? There's one that says, Sonic Youth equals Communism. Daydream Nation equals Russian Revolution. Experimental Jet Set equals Hunt for Red October. So essentially, an idea that seemed right on paper and an initial riotous action, but one that has since corroded into a hollow sham.
3: Wow. <laughs> God damn it.
0: Multiple
1: parts of my head just exploded. Yeah,
3: I, like, I can't
1: even like think of anything to say to that.
3: <laughs> it's funny talking shit on music journalism because I actually truly enjoy good Music criticism and good music writing. Like Mm -hmm. I love reading about music. I love reading like a like an interesting and well written album review. But so often it's just like you know, like with any other job, someone's just like kind of phoning it in. You know. I think writing about music is and will always be
0: important, Mm -hmm. but I think reviews are extremely dated and like they don't need to exist because you know. It makes sense when, you know, you would, in like 1975, you would buy Rolling Stone and you had $10 from like mowing the lawn. You could buy one record. You had to like figure out which one you wanted to get. You can't go through the fucking store and listen to everything. So you had like criticism as a way of like helping you figure out what to do. But now, A, people don't buy music. They just consume it for free Mm -hmm. um, or for like basically free. And like you don't. You can just listen to it quicker than you can read mm-hmm, a review yeah, of it. Yeah, like, and- you don't need a, the fucking number score. I don't need to know, like, that, you know, Daydream Nation got a, a 9.1, but Evol, Evol got like a 9.0 or whatever <laughs> the fuck. It's like, it's completely obsolete. But I do think good music writing, which I think Pitchfork still can do yeah. and does, is important. And there are some really great writers at
3: Pitchfork. Totally.
0: Um, and a lot of those people like are also just writers outside of the site. Yeah, and they write books and they yeah. write um a ton of other stuff, but I think the concept of the review is one that like we just need to reevaluate in in 2020. It's just
3: it's it's worthless to me. Which is funny now like <clears throat> I feel like so many people discover music from like playlists or like radio station, like band radio stations or whatever. And previously with like Rolling Stone and then Pitchfork in the 2000s, they were like gatekeepers where like you wouldn't hear the album unless someone kind of like told you to listen to it, mm-hmm. you know, unless your friend like showed it to you or something. A lot of times you would be exposed to the music that was like presented to you and like, you know, co-signed or whatever. But now so often I just like hear songs on playlists and stuff. And then I make my up my own opinion about the band. Mm-hmm which makes the review like completely irrelevant to me. Yeah. If, but I if,
0: don't think like that getting music recommendations from like an algorithm is like the better alternative. You know, there is like a human element to like people making content and so I don't think that like, you know, Spotify is great and therefore like Pitchfork is bad or whatever. It's like you know, I think that there's there's another another route for people to discover music that's not Algorithm based. I do want to talk about algorithms. Oh yeah, later, yeah.
3: But- I I agree. I don't think it's like you know, I, s- I get my music a variety of ways, but it's a useful way. Mm-hmm. And I think just in in responding to like whether or not the idea or whether or not like reviews are like uh, necessary anymore. So yeah, just like, like
2: I find music just because I go on forums where people yeah. are sort of reviewing it, but more so just being like, hey, check it out. New record out. Mm-hmm. It's cool. This track is my fave, you know, and that's all I need. Right. I mean,
0: Recommendations are great, but I never need to hear this right. record sucks. And if I do, it's out of this like dark, like you know that german word for the uh, enjoyment yeah. you get watching somebody else fail schadenfreude. Schadenfreude. schadenfreude schadenfreude
2: everybody learned that word when trump got covid yeah <laughs>
0: schadenfreude but there you know that's the only reason you'd ever want to read a bad review of anything cuz like if you don't want to listen to it you know yeah. you don't you don't have to you don't have to like it but like telling somebody like hey you're going to like this is cool mm-hmm. but telling somebody like you're going to fucking hate this is just like okay Cool.
3: But I do think I do like the idea of someone like Fantana or this video game donkey mm-hmm. guy more than like a magazine or yeah, like a Pit hub Port of writers wants
0: to be like definitive. That's like why people I think have such an issue with like the pretension of it. Is yeah. like they're like want to be definitive. So like you know I think the story is that like the review is written by one person and then the number is like decided on by mm-hmm. like the the general arbiters of of the site and so it like is attempting to be like the definitive opinion made by like all these really qualified, you know
2: Which is in itself an illusion. Right. There is no such thing. Yeah, of course. And it, it it reminds me of like um like the history of journalism in America before postmodern journalism where this idea of fair and balance somehow came into play. It's like, how the fuck are you gonna be unbiased? It's important. Right. like mm-hmm. NPR is a case in point. I'm sure they try, but they're not and it used to be, you know, like when the country was starting out, like, you know, 18th century, early 19th century, that you would pick up a newspaper and you had a, your choice between a dozen papers and you knew exactly which way each one was leaning. Mm-hmm. So it's like, all right, I'm going to get the conservative opinion. I'm going to get the liberal. Maybe fuck with these guys. All mm-hmm. right. Let's see what's, and then form your own opinion because to pretend that somebody isn't biased. It's mm-hmm. just fucking bullshit. Well, because
0: mm-hmm. most of the media we consume is is corporate media, so they're going to have a pro corporate right. pro capitalist yeah. agenda no matter what. Um but yeah, it's like I feel like even the phrase fair and balanced being coined by fucking Roger Ailes, like <laughs> starting Fox News is just like the most um it just like negates that phrase having any yeah. meaning whatsoever. It,
2: it just ignores how subjective a lot of things are. Um, especially with music reviews, you know, like um, I was going to talk later, but maybe I'll just do it now about <clears throat> my experience tackling this entire discography for the first time. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'd never listened to Sonic Youth, and on paper, I'm reading about them. I'm like, oh wow, this band is fucking cool. Um, like, are, is this the greatest American band ever? Uh, maybe, yes. yeah, I think so. <laughs> yeah, and but then I go to listen to it, and the instrumentals playing and i'm like yeah they really are the greatest band and then the vocals start and i just can't do it it's way too cringe not the lyrics the vocal delivery is this like really specific thing that i don't like because of exactly when i grew up and what was cool when i was 10 versus what was cool when i was 12 you know back Mm -hmm, when like mm -hmm. you know i was Old enough for Ninja Turtles, but too old for Power Rangers, even though it was two years later. You know, that type of thing. Sure. That vocal delivery of, like... The snotty... Yeah, that's what I was... Yeah, I describe it as, like, the finger-in-your-nose punk shit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And it's what I don't like about Hole. um, And it's it's just something that irks me, but it's very subjective. And the fact that I can't listen to Sonic Youth because of it drives me fucking crazy. Because it's probably just... I watched... A TV show when I was eight, where one of the characters did that, and I was like, oh, "This sucks." And because of that, like, it, I, there's nothing I can do. I tried, and I just can't get past the vocal delivery. It nah. might, yeah.
3: it might change though, because for me, that was the biggest obstacle with this band for a long time. And the reason that I never listened to their entire discography because I would like individual things, like the vocals on "Rather Ripped," which we'll talk about very shortly. Yeah, right <laughs> <laughs> next. Um, they don't for whatever reason they don't bother me as much. They're like more subdued. Well, there's like, plenty
2: of songs. Like I'm, I'm gonna go home and make a master Sonic Youth playlist of, like the of just the songs of, where yeah. they don't do it. You know, like the
3: um, Shadow of a Doubt
2: or Heather and Bull or Bull and Heather, where they just don't do it. And right. Fuck yeah! And and there's even some Thurston songs where he doesn't do it, even though his voice really irks me.
3: But now, but the reason I bring it up is because now, it, for whatever reason, it doesn't bother me. Like, I'm able to just, like, it just, like, washes over me, and I'm, like, listening to other things.
0: Yeah, I feel like it only bothers me, especially when it's in, like, the extreme caricature version of it. Like, that song, Master Dick, like, from from the, um, like, you know, pre-this podcast. Mm -hmm. Um, The, like, one, two, one, two, shitty, I know every (laughs) nook and cranny of New York City. It's, Mm -hmm. like fuck, it's, it's like extremely cringe. But like, I think it was just like part of the like character and.
2: Yeah, totally. Um, And yeah, it's just that they're playing with this thing that is cool. This like an idea of what is cool that I don't find cool because (laughs) I came out right after. Yeah. (laughs) By the time I came around, if you were doing that, you're not cool, which is really frustrating. No,
1: I have the same exact thing with, like, early metal, like the classic metal stuff. Mm-hmm. I can't do it because of the vocals because I was already into, yeah. like, screaming. Lah! Oh, yeah, yeah. And like, then, with hip-hop, but then, same shit. Yeah, you go back in time, and it's like, girl! And it's just like, <laughs> I don't ever want to hear this.
2: Yeah, I, it drives me crazy that I can't listen to hip-hop before, like, Big Daddy Kane or something like that. It just sounds like nursery rhymes to me. Yeah.
1: yeah.
3: It is funny, like, this is a cool transition from music journal like flaws of music journalism into this just because they, they what you're talking about um speaks to like how important like not just like cultural context for when an album comes out is but also your own mm-hmm. context and like perspective yeah. as a listener can really really change and which is why like I try really hard not to completely and forever dismiss something unless I just, like, really don't fuck with it and I can really put my finger on it. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, if something is just, like, off or, like, bothers me, I, I try to make a mental note of, like, being open to it later on. Yeah, totally. Just because so often in my life, it, my opinion has changed. Yeah. I did that with Tupac, or I'm presently doing that with Tupac. Oh, nice. There's something
2: about it. I, I can't put my finger on it. I just don't, something about it. But yeah. I, I know that it's good. And I did the same thing with Biggie. Mm-hmm. I resisted Biggie for years until finally I was like, okay, I can do this now.
3: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. yeah, I mean, I we talked about it in the Cure episode. I did that with the entire 80s for a really <laughs> long time. It was just like there is no good music in the 80s. And it was like, you know, we talked, the entire last podcast was about Sonic Youth's 80s output. Right. <laughs>
0: Dive podcast.
1: Man, we got off from NYC and Ghosts.
0: Well, so that was the first um, record of the trilogy that we were talking about,
1: talking about earlier. And um, was this Yeah, this is when all their shit got stolen, right? Uh just before.
0: It was all their shit was stolen before they made NYC yeah. Ghosts
1: and Flowers. Yeah,
0: Which they had is- a, a rider truck. They're on tour, they had a rider truck with all of their touring equipment in it, and it got stolen from out front of the hotel. Never recovered,
1: and nobody ever came. They to- got one guitar back. No, they got they got some stuff back over the next like fifteen years, but wow. not all of it for sure. Because it was like dozens of like guitars. irreplaceable modified.
2: Yeah. And so they're just sitting in some dude's house right now.
1: Well, who knows? Yeah, or like yeah, who knows? There's in um the show us your junk. You know that little Earthquaker YouTube series. Oh yeah. yeah. They just talk about gear. Um, Lee Ronaldo did one, and he tells that story, and he shows him and Thurston's uh, custom Fenders. You know, like their signature models, and it's the complete opposite of what you would expect because you think there's like these weird prepared instruments and stuff, and it's literally only has a volume knob on it, and that's (laughs) it. No switches, no other tone knobs. Yeah. That blew me away. Two pickups, I think, and it has one switch. Uh, okay. for okay. Yeah, pickups
0: like, I feel like that's especially with those like the, the Jazzmaster guitars that are like so popular with that era bands and I think Sonic Youth is a big part of popularizing it but they had all these fucking switches and knobs on the top and like every photo you see of every band playing that guitar there's a giant piece of duct tape across the <laughs> yeah. switches because you hit them and it just shuts the guitar off or like it's right. really confusing what they
1: do yeah I've, I've googled it a thousand times I still can't remember so you know, they're a New York band two thousand one obviously uh nine eleven happened, which stopped everything for everyone for a little while um and I think they were in the middle of recording when it happened, mm-hmm. and so this album took a little detour um and I believe this is the first album where Jim O'Rourke was like an official member of the band at this point, and Kim was playing guitar basically full time and he was mm-hmm. also doing. One of the things that I like about NYC Ghosts is all the crackly bleeps and bloops and all of this because there was, that's what, you know, like Lee and and Thurston did for so much of their career was like all of this sound that wasn't, that you didn't associate with guitar sound, Mm -hmm. but it was just like, and now that freed them up to do kind of more melodic lines because he was doing the weird shit in the background. And this also is a move more towards what I would at least call like indie rock or something. Because uh, I think this happens with a lot of people just when you're in a, a thrashy band for a long time. It's like playing well and and making cool-sounding music is one skill set. And then songwriting is a different skill set. Not that they didn't write great songs before, but I feel like there's a tendency in people who are musicians to – at one point be like, well, let's see what this Bob Dylan's all about. You know, like, like, how do I make a perfect song? Mm-hmm. And I feel like they're kind of like dipping their toe in the water with, with this record.
3: What song in particular?
1: Um, I honestly can't remember. I feel like track That's one.
0: Track, yeah, I was going to say like that first song is called Empty Page, I think, right, is track one? Yeah. And it's, like, such an incredibly good pop song. And it really does that, like, MBV, like, big, kind of, like, glidey, heavy um, guitar chords thing so well. But, like, in this kind of clean and, like, exposed way, it's just, like, it's a really, really, really good song. But um, shall we listen to it? Let's check it out, yeah. I right.
1: As long as they only got hooks, uh, you know the guitar part and the um vocals matching and all that stuff, and I definitely feel what you were saying with the MBV kind of glidey section. Yeah, the guitars feel like they're just kind of floating around,
0: but then like the like inverse of MBV, where there's this like ultra dry vocal at the front, like mm-hmm. literally no effects on it whatsoever. And like the kind of thing that would embarrass, I think, your like average musician, but like, you know, just that's just the decision they made on that record and like they yeah. fucking go for it, you know.
1: And I really like the album cover. It's really cute and wholesome. It's it just is. uh Thurston and Kim's child picking strawberries with her friend. <laughs> I love how the they're picking strawberries and then the last song on the album is called
3: Sympathy for the Strawberries. Yeah. <laughs> it's so funny. Um, I wonder if that was a joke. I wonder if the their daughter like picked one and
1: was like, like, are we killing the strawberry? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> They're
3: like,
0: yes, honey.
1: Yeah, you are. Coco, come on the podcast.
0: Um All right, I guess we're pretty far. We should just start talking about all we could do uh
1: Yeah. I mean um so after that, um, in 2004, was Sonic Nurse. This was another one that I was introduced to early on because my friend had a poster of it in his room. I feel like that's kind of a something that's less common now is like discovering a band from a poster. Totally. Yeah, do
2: bands even still have posters? I
1: don't know. I don't we know. should put yeah, some in the merch so. store. Really? Yeah, we
3: should make a poster. People would buy it. Remember
2: that. when... Um, the dude who plays Spider Man, what's his name? An- oh yeah, Andrew, Andrew something. Oh, yeah. Garfield. He wanted a dive poster for Spider Man's bedroom, and we were like, "Sorry, we don't have posters." <laughs> like, so they just like printed one they out.
0: Printed out like the album cover, yeah, and like just put it like, in yeah, the it side like, next yeah. to like that scene in that sh- in that that first of all, that movie is so fucking bad. But I <laughs> went in the theaters with my friend to go see it because I knew that there was going to be like a dive poster in the background. I was curious what they did. And like the whole plot of the movie is like like mr. Freeze or some like bad guy is mad that Spider-Man <laughs> doesn't remember his name. And then like there's a scene where he like goes in the his bedroom and there's a dive poster on the wall and like a dogtown Z-boys um poster and like kind of like edgy shit. Mm-hmm. And then there's a scene where he lies in his bed and puts headphones in his ear and no joke listens to Mumford and Sons. <laughs>
2: Holy shit. Very indie.
1: Um, But speaking of cover art, Richard Prince did the album art for Sonic Nurse. Yeah. um, it's kind of a controversial figure, eh?
0: Definitely. I mean, I think we we talked about um, appropriation in regards to Sonic Youth on the last podcast, and Richard Prince has made an entire career out of appropriation, his first big photographs where like he literally took a picture of the Marlboro man from a Marlboro
1: ad, mm-hmm.
0: like a photo of a photo and cut the like Marlboro part and like put it out as his art because it's, you know, I think we talked on previous podcasts too about like, um, kind of like cu- curating or like making a new context to like imagery. And so like, he was just this like display of masculinity and I first encountered Richard Prince from his Instagram series, which, like, if you don't know, was, like, he basically would go through Instagram and find, like, young women and comment on their photos and then print out, like, a photo, like a print of their Instagram post with his comment on the bottom mm-hmm. and sold it for a lot of money. And, like, the people who's, who made the original post... Made no money, which is just like really crazy and exploitative, yeah, but it also like draws attention to the fact that, like, which is true that he like got away with it, and made money off it. Like, when you post a photo on Instagram, you do not own it anymore, right? You know, it's no longer yours. Um, it's Richard Prince's, <laughs> <laughs> um, but this was from his, uh, from his, um, nurse series mm-hmm. where he would like. Which were also appropriated. They were like, uh, like pulp novels that you'd find in like whatever you know store about nurses, and they had titles like uh, "Dude Ranch Nurse" or like um, that was, which is a title yeah. on this record, yeah. But um, and and he sold. There's a there's one from the series called "Runaway Nurse" that he sold for nine point six million dollars, and they were like, yeah, just images of um like pulp.
2: Covers. Yeah, that he it looks would, like, like he's painting on the actual covers.
0: Yeah, he would take a piece of like white paint and then like kind of smudge it over their face so that you could kind of see their lips underneath. Um,
2: but you, you can even see like some of the reviews for the book like underneath <laughs> the,
0: the layer of paint. So that was kind of his whole um, thing. When it was, it's interesting that that they used him because like Sonic Youth, I feel like has been this like great appropriator, but in like a much much more interesting way than and just like less direct. Yeah, totally. And like a you know um from like worlds that they were actually involved in. It wasn't like an outsider kind of being like, "Oh, this this image of nurses, mm-hmm. you know, or whatever. It's like, you know, we're borrowing stuff from people that we respect and probably respect us back."
1: Well, the I think it's the last track on the album Pattern Recognition mm-hmm. is based on a novel by um William Gibson who they also you know the sprawl we talked about last time was the concept behind Daydream Nation um so it's interesting that they revisited that guy's work it must have been a really big influence on them um I haven't read any of his books but I want to know.
0: um did, did the beginning of that song uh Dripping Dream sound familiar to anybody else I mean, <laughs> only after dun, dun, you told me. Dun, 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 dun. What does it sound like, Cole? I don't know. Just some song by uh, an artist called Katy Perry. <laughs> there's no shame in ripping that song. It's an amazing song. It is an amazing is song. Yeah, I remember the first time album I heard it.
3: so good. I was in a gas station in Texas. There's I was some, just like, wow. There's some really bad songs on that but, album. but I right really that there was
2: a song from the 90s that was like, a woman saying like i kissed a girl yeah
0: i kissed a girl
2: right yeah that's what like, ED Brickell maybe I don't, I don't know i just remember the
3: video
1: oh i didn't i didn't know that
3: um i love this album
1: yeah it's really good
3: it's like yeah the i love you golden blue mm-hmm. song is so beautiful and weird and peace attack the last song is really good too it's like it's funny like getting to this point of their Discography because it's not like they're doing anything like new, but somehow it's just still good. Yeah,
1: and like kind of new for them though because it's their their songs are a lot more like succinct.
3: Yeah, and there there are like moments where they like commit to like the rock and roll feeling Mm -hmm. a bit harder, Mm -hmm. and in a way that like I think the first time I heard the Eternal, I remember I listened like one time. I came in two thousand seven or something. The Eternal. Which we'll talk about. Uh, but. Yeah, two thousand nine, two thousand nine. I heard it, and I was like, "Oh, this is okay. This is like old people rock." But it's just really not. I think it's like initially with their later stuff, I was inclined to think like, "Oh, this is just like aging compared to their previous stuff." But it's really just like a different
0: mm-hmm. vibe.
3: It's more like rock band. It you is. Know? There's
0: like there's this kind of like inherent paradox that I feel like they had to confront ageism at all times because they're called sonic youth yeah and when they like are no longer youth it's like well then they're not relevant but I think this approach like if you compare this to like a lot of the other kind of like legacy bands who just like go around on stage rehashing the same songs Mm -hmm. over and over to like enter like your late career as as a rock band and like continue to be recording stuff and like and like changing um your approach it's like really admirable and you know like i think david bowie is like the ultimate um artist where like their life is their career and it's like just very the arc is like very lined up and um sonic youth too like they just continued to to make records rather than just like just rehash the same bullshit
1: and when a band's been around for so long you just kind of assume that the later records are going to suck. Right, (laughs) And they just don't. (laughs) No, they don't. And then, yeah, I mean, Rather Ripped, it's, you know, we talked about this earlier, not in the podcast outside, um, (laughs) that just like if someone is asking you like, oh, like, what's their best record? An impossible ask, but... This one is kind of their most accessible, maybe. Yeah, Mm -hmm. I agree. Um, And so Jim O'Rourke at this point is no longer in the band, and apparently they ran all the guitars like straight into the mixing desk and like didn't use amps at all on the record, which is kind of crazy. But so it's a real like clean sounding kind of pristine album, and then you know yeah the songs are a lot shorter and more succinct and. It's just,
0: yeah. I mean, really incinerate good. really like. I think it's like the top listened song on Spotify for yeah. them. Um, uh, like outside of the like a a cover or something, you know. It's like it's like kind of for most people, it's like the first song they're gonna hear. Mm-hmm. And you know, I don't think it represents the um, the band. You know, and there's this really interesting case there's just a Gum article about this Pavement song called Harness Your Hopes um, that was, like, a B-side, like, cast-off from Bright in the Corners that is Pavement's top-played um, song on Spotify. And, like, same with, with Galaxy 500. They have a song called Strange that became their top-played sp- song on Spotify. And, like... So in this article, the writer and then um, earlier the drummer from Galaxy Five Hundred like had gone through and figured out like why is this weird outlier song the top played song, and it like was around the same time that Spotify started doing like the autoplay recommend thing after like you listen to an album and it'll play something similar to mm-hmm. it, and like so it turns out that the songs that are like the most similar to like music in general like the most kind of like, plain songs mm-hmm. just, like, wind up floating to the top because of, like, this algorithm instead of it being, like, a person being, like, this is the new best pavement song. And, like, I feel like Incinerate is a victim of that, too, where, like, yeah, it's a good song, but, like, it's not even in the top, like, 25, for me, Sonic Youth songs. Um, and it's not even, like, the most concise pop song of all of, mm-hmm. all of them. It's just, like, is this... Kind of like um, I don't know
3: Spotify.
1: You hear it everywhere. Yeah, it's like you could go to like H and M right now and it's playing. I bet.
3: <laughs> I disagree though because only because I got into Rather Ripped before I even had Spotify, and like Incinerate was the song that hooked me.
0: Sure, but I think that like the difference is that like the entire album of Rather Ripped isn't, like, up at the top. It's, like, just this one song, you know? And, like, that's Wait, which, kind of... What's the, the
2: song called? Sorry. Incinerate. Incinerate. I wonder if that's when they know. played on Gilmore Girls. I might be. Because that was my... The first time I ever saw, like, Sonic Youth performing was on Gilmore Girls. <laughs> and cool. then... What uh, year was that? Two thousand six. And the the song that they played was like a demo. It's funny as hell because it's like a really dry, like very close to the mic demo recording. But then they just play it as though they're playing it live in this like outdoor park. But it's just Thurston Strum and Kim jumping up and down and their daughter, who was a fan of the show and that's why they did it, um, sort of singing. But it was a demo that ended up on this record, and I wonder if it's that. Hmm. And that's why all these Gilmore Girl fans were like, huh.
3: I don't know. Well, Teenage Riot has twice the amount of plays. This forty-one million. Incinerate is twenty million. Superstar is more than Incinerate. I don't. It's not even their biggest song on Spotify. I think it's just like, well, but it's this- kind of like
0: autoplay core. And like, I guess what I was trying to say before is like, when it's like these single songs that like don't really define a banner, floating to the top, and it's not like the entire album. It like in a big way, I think is representative of the death of like the album as a format.
1: Mm. Yeah, because it came out before Spotify was a thing. And yeah. It, it it was a phenomenon that uh, goes beyond Spotify of like this, so many bands that you might consider like one hit wonders or whatever. Then you check them out and it's like, they got 20 albums and you're like, oh, this is like a full ass band. But for some reason, just they have that one song, you know? And if feel like, incinerate is Sonic Youth's yeah maybe maybe not I think not, that though. song
3: is kind of it's like kind of plain sounding but it still has a lot of minus the noisy elements of their music it has everything that I associate with the band mm-hmm. and yeah I don't know the guitar part's like very Daydream Nation sounding to me and like the building part in the middle of the section the Thurston vocal I do, I do know. uh, It is interesting that you single it out because it is like it's the most accessible song that they made, probably. You know, maybe one of Uh, them for sure. It's just because it's like so like it's very easy to listen to. Mm -hmm. That it's just like kind of cool in the same way that like Body Snatchers by Radiohead is like cool sounding. You know what I mean?
0: Yeah, I mean it's definitely it's definitely extremely accessible, Um, and I guess like that is what would float to the top of a band with like a pretty like, obtuse um, discography. Yeah. But I feel like it's not representative of the band for that reason. Right. It's, like, kind of the far extreme of the, like, pop side of things, which they're always trying to balance with the experimental side.
3: Yeah. I think Rather Ripped on the whole is kind of that. It's probably their most
1: pop-leaning album.
3: Yeah. But I also really like that about it. Like, that Jams Run Free song...
1: Turquoise boy is a really good there's, one too. There's
3: a moment where I think Kim's singing or whatever, but like the guitars go to these single note things, and the and Steve Shelley starts playing on the ride, and it's so plain. It's like shocking how little is going on. You mm-hmm. know, what I mean, it's like really naked, and for whatever reason, it still like sounds so cool to me. Mm-hmm. And yeah, I don't know. I, with I think about that record a lot because it doesn't really sound like sonic youth especially compared to the rest of their discography but all it also doesn't sound like another band mm-hmm. it's weird that they were able to make like this like outlier record that is like doesn't sound like them in in the same way but is still unique it's like very
1: strange i also feel like the title rather ripped is like this weird kind of
0: uh it was named after like a berkeley record store
1: oh yeah something it was it was named after a record store i guess that actually makes sense but without knowing that it just se- it seems like unserious to me like yeah. uh so pitted yeah yeah totally <laughs> yeah um i guess
0: like another uh I really like they kind of address that like lazy music journalism thing that we talked about earlier on this record. It reminds me of the like um what's that Pink Floyd song, Welcome to the Machine? Or Have a Cigar. I forget which one. Where where they're like, Welcome by the, the way, machine. which one's pink? Mm. Like just like a dumb question. I think that's have a cigar. I think it is have a cigar. Um but like oh, yeah. you know, the the questions are like, you know, Thurston just like reads them off like how long is the tour like where are you playing next like by the way like which comes first the like music or the lyrics yeah or whatever it's just classic question classic question and like (laughs) who cares but like you know I don't know it's just funny how these like bad questions get rehashed over and over and over um and I like how this song just like Just it's like almost like some Mark Kozilek shit of just like I fucking got interviewed and they asked me this, yeah. Um, Steve Shelley plays in Sun, he does, yeah, he plays in Sun, Kill Moon now,
1: or you know, probably not when music happens, (laughs) yeah, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Well, and then you know, the final frontier here, the Eternal 2009, Mm -hmm. the 15th and final Sonic Youth record, which is also good um and it's really good it's (laughs) it's
0: it's it's, like intimidating every time i listen to one i'm like okay this one's gonna be like boring or something and it's just like every time i'm like well this is so fucking good Mm -hmm. and i felt the need to text you guys every time i would listen to one (laughs) Mm -hmm. for for the first time in a while i would just be like yo this one is fucking
1: crazy yeah like every time so this is um at This is the only record, I guess, they put out on Matador Mm -hmm. after doing Geffen for many, many years. I think eight records. And this is the highest charting album. Got to number 13 on the billboards. It was also the longest they went between records, which was three years, which is like, wow, having a 30-year-long career. And the longest you ever went was three years Mm -hmm. without putting a record. And they'd still put out like EPs in there, too.
0: That's what's so extra... Intimidating about this band is like you know, Daydream Nation came out like a year after the record before it, and like, and in between all this, you know, we didn't even talk about the SYR series Mm -hmm. that they're putting out in between all these later records. Mm -hmm. Just the amount of like very very good output. You know, we didn't talk about Goodbye Twentieth Century. Like all the yeah,
1: like the Fish Tank series,
0: Fish Tanks, like that. Just like steps foot in different worlds that they occupy, and it was just like this constant flow of of like you know incredible music that like there was just this like weird like group think synergy thing that just like mm-hmm. I don't it makes no sense to me
1: yeah i mean it's it's like i feel like sad that we've reached the end of the discography <laughs> it's like <laughs> i cuz cuz it is sad you know it's like I don't care about their like personal lives or like right. you know that they broke up or whatever but it's just like this was such a huge band and it's not like they stopped making art after this it was just mm-hmm. their personal relationships weren't able to continue and so you know I think
2: that's why it doesn't bother me maybe because I'm not a sonic youth fan so them all being together to create something isn't as necessary for what I get out of it mm mm-hmm. um But yeah, I'm psyched to just tear through their solo albums and all that stuff, side projects. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, even though I said before I have a hard time listening to it, it still is going to influence me a lot because it's exactly how I wish I could write songs. Mm. Um, I'm just going to change up the vocal delivery a little bit.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I feel a sense of like jealousy when I think about Sonic Youth where I'm just like, man, because also starting in like 1981 or whatever, it's so clear that everything in their lives was just like making music because mm-hmm. you wouldn't be able to have such a uh, prolific career without just like every waking moment spent working on music and you know, just being alive and like we've talked about before, like we do have success as a band or whatever, but like we've got to do other things to have a life and to like keep ourselves alive and stuff. And so just this the life of an artist or whatever when thinking about Sonic Youth is just, like, the kind of the ultimate picture of that, of just, like, it was their whole life.
0: Yeah, and I think that's what it takes to make, like, to be great at anything, you know? Like, I listened to this AA speaker tape with this, like, NASCAR driver, and just, like, I'd never really thought about it, but, like, the only thing that he thought about was nascar driving to the point where his like relationships with his family and friends disintegrated because it was just only thought about nascar driving and he was became the best nascar driver or whatever Mm -hmm. but like i think that there is this like devotion to your art that like like to be a band like this it has to be like everything
1: yeah it's intimidating um did anybody have anything to say about this record in particular I didn't get around to it. (laughs) The Dive
0: Podcast.
1: So, I mean, Kim Gordon put out a record in 2019. Thurston Moore put out one this year. Lee Ronaldo put out one this year. Still going strong, and they're all good. And, uh, you know, we briefly mentioned Steve Shelley playing in Sun Kill, Moon and just like so many other bands, like over the years that I didn't know about Cat Power, Mike Watt, Daniel Johnson, Richard Hell, The Raincoats.
0: Yeah, that Cat Power collaboration is like so special to me. It's just, you know, like guitar and drums for those two records. I think it's Dear Sir and Moon Picks or Moon Picks and What Would the Community Think or something like the second and third records. Um, and it's just like the two of them. And I, uh, the story is that they recorded both albums in one day, and it's just like the way that um, the way that they work together in these like super minimal compositions is just like beautiful, and it just I think it really speaks to his drumming um, that like you know he can work with a band like Sonic Youth and fill in a lot of, like, this kind of, like, weird textures that they're doing and then work with somebody like that who's, like, basically the opposite. You know, like, a singer-songwriter mm-hmm. straight up and
3: just, like, make the songs even cooler than they could have been. My, be- my f- final takeaway about Sonic Youth, maybe this is a good conclusion, is that it was really, really rewarding to listen to their entire discography and, like, learn so much about them because I really have an appreciation for how they work as a band and it like paints a picture of like how you can make music as Mm -hmm. you get older, Mm -hmm. which is like a really difficult thing and concept that everyone struggles with because like the music industry and like all entertainment, just like really like, you know, you become like devalued as you get older. A lot of times, either because your, like, sex appeal or your general appeal goes away, but also a lot of times, too, just because, like, your ideas aren't as, like, fresh or interesting. But here's this band that, like, made really, really interesting music until the, like, end of their career and mm-hmm. then continue to make solo projects that are, like, worth listening to. So yeah. it's just, it was it was really, like, encouraging for me to learn about all this shit mm-hmm. and, like... uh Gives me even more hope about our band Dive. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, and we, uh, we tried to do a jam that maybe kind of sounds like Sonic Youth. So. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it does. I think it's,
3: it's cool.
2: My favorite part is Ben's threw a guitar track on, kind of like <laughs> trucks downshifting on the highway. Yeah. It's so sick.
1: Cool. Well, that was uh, many hours of talking. Thank you for listening to that. I hope it was enjoyable. Goodbye.